The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is Dr. Jennifer Ferrand. I'm honored today to act as guest host for my friend, colleague, and regular host of this podcast, Dr. John Santapietro. I'm a board-certified clinical health psychologist with 16 years of experience in Hartford HealthCare. And much like Dr. Santapietro, I've spent the past year working directly with patients experiencing and coping with the ramifications of the pandemic, and also acting in a leadership role addressing the wellness of healthcare workers to ensure their safety, adjustment, and professional fulfillment during these uncertain times. I'm honored to join the team at the Quell Foundation as they continue to lift up the voices of our healthcare professionals who are still living with the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic. Let's get started. So welcome everybody to today's Lift the Mask podcast. I'm really pleased to be hosting this conversation. I feel very lucky to have Neek with us today. Neek is a nurse who lives and works in the Netherlands. And this is the first time we've had the privilege of speaking with somebody from outside the United States. So Neek, I want to start by saying how grateful we are at the Quell Foundation for healthcare providers like yourself who have the incredible courage to share your stories. I'm personally- Hi, thank you, Jennifer. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm really very poignantly aware of um, the losses and the emotional upheaval that you've endured as a healthcare professional this past year, and for the emotional trauma that you and other frontline workers have sustained. And I'd also like that, to point out that here in the U.S., we've been marking the passage of one year since the onset of COVID-19. And we have much to learn from you. So I'd love to sort of frame our discussion today in terms of these lessons learned uh, that we can sort of reflect on at this point in the pandemic. All right. So (laughs) we've spoken prior to this, Nick, and I'd like to highlight a few things that you shared in our initial conversation, but wondered if you could start by telling us a little bit about where you work and what you do and how did your life change when the pandemic hit? Well, I, I work in elderly care. It's a nursing home. It's a long time stay for people who have multiple difficulties in, in sustaining themselves. Basically, it's just elderly care. And then when the pandemic hits, of course, everybody, you know, they create their own bubble, which meant that a lot of things changed, such as uh, visitation rights, but also everybody was isolated to make sure that the virus didn't spread. So a lot of things that usually more people are working on really got to depend on the people who are working and giving health. Um, how do I say this? The nurses, basically. 
Yeah. Okay. So you're saying a lot more responsibility fell to the nursing Mm -hmm. staff. Yeah. What you see is a lot of loneliness because none of the relatives could come and visit. So, you know, you had to take extra time and care to be there. So here in the U.S., we we were first hit by the pandemic in March of 2020. Was that the same time it, it really hit for you all? Yes. Same time. Okay. And then did you have those visitor restrictions? Did those start right away? Like what kind of, from like an administrative perspective, what were the rules and regulations that were, that were established early on? Well, early on, the thing that really got quickly established was face masks. And we have the one and a half meter rule. Basically, you can't stand close to one another. Those were really from the beginning. But I live in the, in the north of the Netherlands. So the pandemic for the Netherlands started in the south and hit really the big cities, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Utrecht. Before it really hit us, we were already past summer. So, yeah. Oh, I see. I see. So when did you start to see cases? September. We had our first case. And then after that, it just blew up. Yeah. So basically, my entire floor just got shut down and everybody quarantined and you know no uh, activities planned anymore everybody had to stay in their own room what was that like for you and your your colleagues well strange really in the in the Netherlands we are really focused on on the well-being of a person that includes activities being among others and and dining together and then all of a sudden you know you basically lock them up so to speak. And it was just weird. So I'm struck by something you said. You said in the Netherlands, you're really concerned about the well-being of the person. Do you mean of the patients you're taking care of? Or is yes. is there also a focus on the well-being of you as a healthcare professional? Do you feel that? <laughs> uh, I would say it's mainly focused on the patients, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's why we're there. And a little bit on colleagues and, you know, trying to maintain our own health. Yes. Yeah. So what kinds of things, I'm really curious about this, what kinds of things did you and your colleagues do when you started to see a lot of patients uh, with COVID? What kinds of things did you all do to protect your, your well-being and to support one another? And what kinds well, of things did your, your leadership do for you? The thing is, is that we are mainly a team that provides them themselves. So we do have a leader but we rarely see her. So um, well, we started obviously with being all wrapped up in, in plastic and gloves and, and face masks and, and glasses, which is hard, by the way, to work in. It's very, very warm. You're talking very, about the, the protective yeah. equipment that you were wearing? Yeah. yeah, it's not only physically very hard, but also mentally, because the entire day you feel like you're, I wouldn't say choked, choking, but I would, rather say, you know, very uncomfortable. It's hard. But the thing that we did was because we had six or eight patients in one go. So there would be one person who would do all those patients for the entire day. But you are basically also isolated for the entire day. So you don't see or talk to your colleagues that entire day. How isolating it is to be wearing protective equipment all day long, to be caring for what sounds like, you know, a a really discreet group of patients and not being able to talk to your colleagues or communicate with your colleagues at all during the day. 
those were the patients that only got tested positive for COVID. The other patients tested negative. So in order to try to maintain the infected patients, we just sent out one colleague that it takes care of them the entire day. So we don't combine people who work with positive tested patients and negative tested patients. So yeah, I don't think I ever felt that alone while working ever. I see. So you mean in your your career, the loneliest and isolated, most isolated you felt was when you were taking yeah. care of these COVID patients. Yeah. Usually you go to your colleagues, you know, you talk over a case or what would you do and stuff like that. And this was just talking to a doctor on the phone. And that's basically it. And family members. But the entire day you were just sitting there in your big old uniform and just trying to take care of patients, which was also hard because they were dying. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you must have, you know, I would imagine in the setting that you work in that that you lost a lot of your patients. We lost about, I think, 15 in total. But thankfully, now they're all vaccinated. So if I compare it to now, at a different floor, we do have people who also tested positive for COVID but they were also vaccinated. So instead of getting deathly ill, what you see now is that they're ill, but they're not deadly ill. You know, I they, see. They'll get better soon. I see. I see. So it's it must feel a little less isolating. Do you still have all the COVID mm-hmm. patients being taken care of in a different space with all the protective equipment and all that? Well, this time I wouldn't know because when COVID hit the Netherlands, we weren't allowed to sit with other colleagues from different floors. Right now, you sit with your own team, and that's fine. Obviously, maintaining the same rules that we apply throughout the Netherlands. But talking to somebody from a different floor right now is just not happening. So I don't know what's going on over there. So I've talked to other healthcare professionals who have talked about how that loneliness and isolation actually persists after you leave work because the the responsibility of the healthcare worker is so high that when you leave work and you're in your personal life, you still feel isolated. What was that like for you? Well, because I worked with positive tested COVID patients, my social life just was non-existing. So feeling lonely at work, coming home and then feeling lonely again because there's nobody around. That's kind of hard. Yeah. Did you see your family during the first Uh, wave? No. My dad is 65 right now. He's also diabetic. So while I was working with the COVID patients, I was making sure I wouldn't see him. So you were trying to protect your family Mm -hmm. from potentially being infected. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so profound if you think about, you know, the level of isolation that you're experiencing professionally, and you're missing the opportunities that are inherent in your job, you know, talking to your colleagues, having lunch together, communicating about patients sort of on the fly, and all that sort of normal socialization and communication that happens at work. You're missing all of that. And then on top of that, you're also missing purposely any communication with people outside of work too. Yeah. Usually when you have a hard day at work, you come home. If you have any spouses, you know, you talk to them about it. In my case, usually I have friends, so I go over there and talk to them about it. But with the pandemic and hard days at work, 
and actually having my clients dying on me, coming home to an empty house and well, basically all alone with my dog, it's hard because it's like somebody just gave you a feeling, a rock, and just mm -hmm. said, you know what, hold on to this. You, you cannot let it go. And that's how it felt. You oh, went to bed with it. You woke up with it. That's so, a yeah. powerful image. And one of the things that struck me from our previous conversation was that you said during the pandemic that one of the hardest parts about this was that no one asked you how you were doing. What I meant by that is nobody from the top mm -hmm. asked me how it went. Nobody, not my boss, not people who are usually on your case about you have to do better, this and that. Nobody asked, how is it going with, with you? It was only focusing on, you know, is everybody still alive? Is it, are we maintaining the same rules? Is everybody still negative from COVID? Stuff like that. And I understand that if you have a pandemic, you have to, you know, be very business-like about it. You have to just follow the rules. But at the end, uh, eventually I even asked, would it be possible for us as a team to talk about the experience of what COVID did to us and what it did to our floor and our team, I didn't get a response to that. So you asked, you asked your leadership if you could have this conversation as a team. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And that wasn't possible because we are still restricted by, you know, you can have that many people in a room, you have to maintain a distance. So here where I work, we do a lot of meetings over an electronic platform. And so it's it's sort of a rough estimate of what it feels like to actually participate in, a, in an actual group with live people. But do you do a lot of that in the Netherlands where you work too? Do you have virtual meetings? Well, I started school again in last August, September. So I have a, I have a lot of these meetings on Monday. And we do have team meetings also, on, we, we use Teams instead of Zoom, mm -hmm. but we don't have them regularly, no. And no. you're saying that the focus of these meetings, when you do have them, is really about sort of adherence to policies and mm -hmm. patient stuff and, you know, whether people are being safe and following procedures. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. One of the things that we've learned, I think, globally about what healthcare professionals need during a crisis, it all sort of boils down to, I think, both being informed and feeling cared for, right? So mm -hmm. it's important that you feel that your leaders hear your concerns and that they're making efforts to protect your safety and that you feel, I think, prepared for what you're being asked to do and supported emotionally, I think from a global perspective, that's kind of what we've learned is most important. What do you, would you agree? What do you think about that? I think that the folks should be more on it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is it happening right now? No. I do feel that they are looking for what's most important now and what's more important for later. I think, I hope that they'll start to ask these questions, you know, when we are out of pandemic. Yeah. So have you, outside of work, Neek, have you gotten any any help? Have you reached out for support? Tell me about that. Well, at one point, we didn't have any COVID patients or COVID patients at work. All my patients were negative and safe. So, you know, I slowly started to regain having contact with friends and, and family. 
So at one point, you know, you just start talking about it. And that's a lot of help and support, you know, coming from there. But also, yeah, I already had a psychologist that I used to see. And I just started it again in December because as long as I tried to deny the fact that it really did something to me, it really hit me around the holidays. And I was really like, okay, I need to get help again. How did you know? How did you know that, like, what were the signs to you that you needed to get some help? Well, coming from a year of having therapy, you really learn the signs. You, you learn mostly a, a lot about yourself and, and, you know, what happened and where trauma is coming from. But you also learn about the signs that if things aren't going well, what are the main focus points? For me, my household is one. As soon as it starts to get messy and I don't feel like cleaning, that's usually also the same what's going on in my head. So, so if my house is in motivation yeah, if, and the level of sort of orderliness of your home. Yeah. If my house is a mess, it means I'm a mess. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I really started to see that at one point my house was just a big mess and it was dirty and I really need to clean. And there was one point that I thought, oh, shit. It's not going as well as I thought it would be. Mm. So, um, yeah, I reached out and got help again. You know, I think it's really important for our listeners to hear what you have to say about how you know you need help, which you've shared with us, but mm. also how does your life improve when you get help? What did you notice started to change after you reached out? Well, if you haven't had therapy before and you don't know yourself that well, I would say just ask people around you, but also what is the first thought that you have of that day? Is it positive or is it negative? Because that really shows you what the rest of the day is going to be like. So if you start your day with basically hating yourself, that means that the entire day will be very difficult for you to be positive. And, you know, if you get help, you learn to, see those differences and you you learn how to deal with them you learn how to not be your own biggest enemy and also accept that you have sometimes you have those feelings yeah yeah well and you're talking about something really important too that i think is such a blessing of of therapy which is the you know the importance of starting your day with the the expectation or um sort of a frame for how the day is going to go mm -hmm. It's really important to wake up and you don't even have to love yourself. You just have to like yourself that day. Loving yourself for people with depression and, and traumas and whatnot. You know, it's hard to really have those deep emotions, but start by liking yourself. Yeah. You know, the, the way I would sort of reframe that is to say that like sometimes it feels like you're going through the motions, right? If mm -hmm. you're, if you're deeply depressed a therapist or a psychologist might tell you, all right, you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to not feel so depressed. But it might feel in the beginning like you're going through the motions and it doesn't feel, you're not feeling it deeply, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't feel like emotions. It just feels like you're just doing those actions that somebody has told you to do and you're hoping yeah. it will make you feel better. Yeah, exactly. Has that worked for you? It works for me. Having a depression is not going to therapy and you're cured and it's done and it's happy for the rest of your life it doesn't work that way every day is a new 
struggle is a new test. Maybe struggle is a negative word to use for it, but it's a new test. So you have to wake up every day. And if you don't love yourself that day, then at least like yourself that day and try to be positive for that day. At least be kind to yourself. I think that's really important to people who are depressed because your own biggest enemy is basically yourself. I've been thinking about what can people do to build and maintain resilience during crises. And I've tried to sort of boil it down into some steps, right? So Mm -hmm. that we could sort of reproduce this and teach people how to do it. If we were going to teach people how to be resilient in a crisis, what would that look like? And I think the first thing we do, we'd have to do is recognize that you're in distress. And you talked about that, Neek, right? You recognize that your motivation wasn't as strong and that your, your house was messy. And then you have to have the courage to actually access help in some way. And luckily, you already had an established relationship with somebody that was already there for you. I imagine it might have been a lot harder if you didn't already have an established relationship with someone you used to see. Well, if I compare it to the first time I actually reached out for help, Mm -hmm. going to my doctor, it took me years to actually reach out to get help. So if you are having a crisis in the pandemic, you want to build up that resilience and you have to take that first giant big step, it's it's going to be hard. So you're saying that when this happened to you before, Mm pre-pandemic, when you needed help, it took, are you saying it took years to recognize that you needed help? Um, No, it it took took years to actually be connected to help. It took years to actually be connected to help. One in the Netherlands, we have a saying, normal doen doe je al gek genoeg, which basically means if you act just like normal, it's crazy enough. Wait, can you say that again? What the saying is? <laughs> doe maar normaal, dan doe je al gek genoeg, which translates to just like normal, it's already crazy enough, because we are a very sober people. Also, being a guy, talking about mental health, it's really it's still the generations before me didn't talk about it and i'm very happy to see that the generation after me actually is talking more about it and is normalizing it because it is a real issue so when you first reached out did you reach out to your doctor somebody you you already see for health healthcare well actually i went to my doctor for a whole different thing i had my leg that was busted but when i sat there and she just i don't really know what happened but at one point, I was sitting there crying. You know, she was like, okay, you you might need to get help. And um, like I said, I don't really know what happened anymore. But apparently, my mind was already so overfilled with it that, you know, I just said, let's just have a go with it. So I accepted it with both hands. And I said, yeah, I, wow. I really do need help. And then how long were you in help, receiving help? Like how long did it take for you to start to change the way you thought about accepting help? Well, first of all, the wait list for a therapist in the Netherlands is about three months. Mm -hmm. So that took a really long time. And I kind of went into therapy thinking that it wouldn't help me because, you know, talking to somebody about your problems, um, how would that help you? But it took me about, six to seven months to actually sort of land on my feet and start to realize that what I'm doing is actually helping and is also going somewhere. So, yeah. Wow. I'm so glad to hear it. 
I want to go back to those steps, right? So like if I was teaching somebody how to be resilient in a crisis, I mentioned that the first step is recognizing you're in distress. The second step is accessing help. help. Yeah. Hopefully the help is forthcoming and mm-hmm. you don't have a huge wait list. But then the third step I think is, is showing kindness to yourself and others. Absolutely. Just, these are my thoughts about what I think resilience is all about. But what do you think about that? I think that being kind to yourself should be the second step. <laughs> because if you're not kind to yourself, you will not accept the help. But those are really the best steps you can take. Basically, it's admitting, you know, there's something wrong. Admitting that you need help and getting help. Exactly. I think this is so true for healthcare professionals that we're very good at showing compassion to others but we're, we're not so good at showing compassion to ourselves. I don't know if it's the same in the, in the, in the U S but usually you see the people who wait the longest to actually go to a doctor, even if it's for something else, it's always nurses who just wait <laughs> yeah. until, you know, an arm almost falls off and then they'll accept the help. Oh, I, okay. I do need a doctor. So mm-hmm. I, I joke about it now, but I do think that that works the same if it comes to our mental health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we could do a better job of showing compassion to ourselves. And I also think there's room for improvement in terms of showing compassion and kindness to our coworkers or our colleagues, right? So like one of the things I noticed in my workplace during the pandemic is that we had so many people who were suffering that there just wasn't enough professional help for everybody. And so we had to learn how to help ourselves and how to help each other and how to capitalize on the the natural supports that happen and can happen inside your team, inside a group of colleagues that have a shared vision or a shared purpose or a shared sense of values. And You're all in the same boat. You're all in the same boat. There's definitely this um, universality to this experience, right? Well, sometimes it can be as easy as just sitting down and just asking, you know, I, I see that, you know, you're stressing out. Uh, how are you feeling? Even those few words can just make a whole difference in how somebody is going to receive the next few weeks. So, yeah, talking about having the help that's already there, helping each other is very important, at least during a pandemic. For sure. Yeah. I think checking in on the well-being of others is really easy, but also incredibly powerful. And I would encourage our listeners to to not wait. If you think someone needs help, pick up the phone or talk to them in person and check in on them. And I love the language, Neek, that you put to it. You suggested just asking somebody, how are you feeling? It's easy as that, but also if you feel that during a pandemic and the work is getting hard, reach out to your colleagues, tell them you are not feeling well, tell them you are feeling overwhelmed by everything. Don't wait for somebody else to ask, how are you doing? Tell them that you want to talk to somebody. It really, really helps. You're not some wimp if you talk about those feelings. And that especially that goes especially for men. Yeah, I think you I think you're right on and I really appreciate that you have the courage to say that. Well, if you would have asked me I think 2 years ago before I started 
therapy and, and, you know, really start to connect with feelings, then I would have given you a whole different answer. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> do you have, do I remember, Nick, you saying that you had younger siblings? I do. I have two younger brothers. Two younger yeah. brothers. So what will you be teaching for them and, and modeling for them? Well, fortunately, they are a lot smarter than I am, which surprised me every time I talk to them. So I don't really have to teach them anything. (laughs) They already know. Mm -hmm. I'm the stubborn one in the family. So, yeah. So I think you've really covered a lot of the lessons learned for healthcare workers trying to sort of work through a pandemic. But I'm going to ask you a hard question. Maybe this won't be hard, but what do you think are the lessons learned for healthcare organizations or leaders? What would you like your organization to do differently in a pandemic or in a crisis situation? What do you need? I would say start early on and don't only focus on protocol and and rules and stuff like that. Just try to see that the patients are not the only humans that you have to take care of. You work with a lot of people who are really having to take everything in every day, put your focus on them as well. I love the way you just said that the patients are not the only humans that you have to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. That's so powerful. You know, we are not just a, another paycheck that you have to sign off. We are also the people who are, we are at risk at getting COVID or at least used to while working with COVID patients day in, day out. Mm-hmm. We are very close to the fire. Make sure that those people are being taken care of as well. So here in the U.S. at this point, many of us are vaccinated and many of our patients are vaccinated. What's it like in the Netherlands? How are you doing with vaccinations? Well, um, everybody who worked in, in healthcare had the opportunity to get vaccinated from the start. And then all the patients had, uh, had the opportunity to get vaccinated. I myself am vaccinated now for two months already, but what I am seeing is that if I look at different countries with the pace that they vaccinated, it's much higher than the Netherlands. And I think that we are really, really going slow at it. And I don't know why, but what you also start to see is I'm I'm pretty sure you also see it in the US is that the longer it takes, the more people you get who don't want to get vaccinated for some reason. So I really hope everybody in the Netherlands is vaccinated before autumn. Yeah. What does it feel like at your workplace now? Does it feel different than it did six months ago now that a lot of people are vaccinated? No, not really. No. I think a few of our patients are still waiting for the second shot, but I really do hope that when everybody's vaccinated that we can start to do things like open up, you know, the restaurants so that the people can dine together again and have activities and But I do think that it will always be different than the way it was before. Do you still have visitor restrictions? Right now, yes. They can have one visitor a day and three the same visitors in a week to create a certain bubble. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. This was such a wonderful conversation, and I'm so grateful to Unique for giving us the time and for sharing your experiences. And thank you for having me. Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in a Silent Pandemic. With Dr. John Santopietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, 
The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer, Sarah Marshall. Theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editor, Vlad Radu. Film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512